During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it with his armies. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. When Nebuchadnezzar returned to Babylon, he took with him some of the sacred objects from the temple of God and placed them in the treasure house of his God in the land of Babylonia. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, who was in charge of the palace officials, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good sense, and have the poise needed to serve in the royal palace. Teach these young men the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily ration of the best food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for a three-year period, and then some of them will be made his advisors in the royal court. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief official renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. All right, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we love already what's happened today. And now we ask that you would come, open the scriptures, lead us, guide us, teach us, I love that we're not just on this journey on our own left to understand what we can understand, but you are constantly whispering and opening our eyes to see things. So we cry out for revelation to come as we look at the text. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so here's where we're at. If, bring you up to speed. Um, we're at a moment in time where Jerusalem is under siege from the Babylonians. It's under siege from the Babylonians because Josiah, the prior king, decides to go out to war against the Egyptian king, Necho. Now, it's interesting if we look at that because King Necho was on assignment from Egypt to come against the Babylonians. God had actually spoken to Necho. Necho is coming to fight the Babylonians and Josiah... In my opinion, what I think I see in the scripture is that Josiah, who's one of the most incredible kings in scripture, there's a season, an extended season in Josiah's life where we don't see him seek God, and then we see him make a decision that surely looks like he wasn't seeking God because King Necho says to him, what are you doing here? Your God told me to go out against Babylonians. Josiah refuses to listen. Josiah goes to battle against Necho. Necho kills him. They win. Necho comes back takes Jerusalem. Necho goes back out to find, fight the Babylonians, but the Babylonians actually win, so the Babylonians come to this moment, and they take over Jerusalem. What I want to take a look at is this process we're in, because we see these four young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, we see these four young men who are being brought into what we would call the Babylonian re-education process. So I want to take a look at what we can learn about this re-education process from a historical point of view, because I think there's some applications for us in our lives. The first thing we know about this re-education process is the Babylonians selected only the best and brightest, and they were generally from the noble or royal families. They were 14 years of age at the time that they would be selected. Now, how many would look at most 14-year-olds in our culture and not expect a whole lot from them? <laughs> we're like, if we just keep you to minimizing your fortnight time, we're going to be fine. <laughs> but here they are, 14 years of age, and I want you to think about this. This process would take three years. 
14 to 18 is a really transformational time in life. There's a lot of, there's a lot of life that's being established and directed and choices being made. That entire pocket of time for them was going to be spent learning a new culture, learning the systems and manners and customs of the Babylonians. It's interesting if you think about it, really what it means is here's these four young men. We looked at them a couple weeks back. We looked at them for their, their character and, and, and the way they had invested their lives into the right kind of path. And on, all of a sudden, all of their personal ambitions are gone. Their lives were never again going to be about what they wanted. They were going to be about what the Babylonians wanted. The part that's been challenging for me is we must consider this reality. God had actually arranged for them to be taken captive. The God they served, the God they loved, the God that they were faithful to had arranged for them to be taken captives and put into a really difficult situation. Now, God knew what he was doing, but these young men didn't. In the next few weeks, what we're going to study is what's mesmerizing to me is their the way they handle this. They don't complain. We don't see a thing. What we see is faithfulness. Here's my question for us. Can you and I be trusted by God for him to lead us into difficulty and remain faithful? Because so much in our culture, we see so many people that will wither away in their faith if it doesn't work for them. And I, I'm not, my goal is not to share bad tidings with you. It's to say authentic discipleship has to be built on the foundation of surrender to him where we would say, wherever you take me, wherever you lead me, I will remain faithful. If we don't build it on that, what's going to happen is the first time life gets difficult, life gets hot, life gets hurtful, we tend to want to pull away and walk away from our faith with Jesus. How many have met people that are kind of they're, in, they're into the God thing as long as it works for them. How many have ever been there yourself? And I'm, my call for us is to settle in our hearts the reality. And I know this is such a K-love message. It's positive and encouraging. <laughs> settle in our hearts that God may lead us into places that are difficult. And what's gonna be tested in that moment is our faithfulness. There's a man that... Uh, has spoken into my life a lot. His name is Rick Howard. He's a really good teacher. He was a mentor of Pastor Gary's. And so because of that, uh, I got to be around him. And he made a statement one time that stuck with me. Human beings are like sponges in that you actually don't know what's in it until they're squeezed. So church, when you get squeezed and you see a lack of faithfulness come out, it should cause us to stop, hit our knees and go, oh, Jesus, I need you I need you to realign what's going on inside of here. One more time, I give you my life. Can we imagine what this journey would look like if Jesus had not had that constitution? My favorite part of Jesus' life is when he says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to take the cross. I don't want to do it. But nevertheless, your will, not mine. Second thing we learn from this re-education process is, as part of this process, these young men were to receive new names. So if we think about the re-education process, we understand the goal of it was really to strip away their history. And the Babylonians were an incredibly intelligent culture. 
that understood you can conquer people much easier if you strip their leadership and their wealth. And then by stripping their leadership, you don't just take them away because if you take them away and you put them in captivity, all they're going to want to do is revolt. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to retrain all their future leaders. We're going to inculcate them at such a level in our culture that they're never going to want to return to their culture. Thereby, we've not just conquered a people once, we've conquered them perpetually. Because there will no longer ever be a generation that wants to return. They're going to raise future generations in our manners, in our customs. And so part of that process was they would rename them. And I want to take a look at the original names of these young men and the names they were given. We start with Daniel. Daniel's name means God is my judge. God is my judge. I love this. It's this incredibly integrable name that says, I, I, and literally think about what it says. I am one that can stand in such righteousness that I trust God's judgment over me. It says that no man around me is going to be my judge. Not in an arrogant way, in a they won't need to. I love it because what it says is, I, I'm not going to live in the fear of man. I'm living in the fear of God. This is Daniel. This is his life. The name they give Daniel is Belteshazzar, which means Belet protects my life. It's an antithetical statement. Belet was a female god. It's interesting to note they shifted the gender connection in his name. He went from being aligned with Yahweh in a masculine form to being aligned with a female god. And what they basically said is, God's not your judge anymore. Belet is. Hananiah means Jehovah has been gracious. It's this idea that God has been prosperous to me. He's been good to me. They rename him Shadrach, which contains an alignment with the pagan deity Marduk. Now, Marduk's not a name we're super familiar with, but we are familiar, most of us, with Baal. Elijah and the prophets of Baal is a story in the scriptures where Baal is one of the gods in the region, and Baal's considered the god of gods. There's one of my favorite stories is Elijah and the prophets of Baal because all these prophets of Baal are trying to prove to Elijah that their god's bigger than his god. And so Elijah says, well, let's, let's have a dance-off. <laughs> Tell you what, you build, you build your fires, you build your altar, you get your animals to sacrifice, and you dance and worship before your God, and I'll do the same thing. And so all, there's 400 prophets of Baal, and the scripture says they begin to cut themselves and yell and scream and dance. And I love Elijah's posture in this because he's so confident in who he serves that he stands there and he's like, I think he's sleeping. You should be louder. Oh, I don't think you're bleeding enough. You guys, come on, work a little harder. Wake him up. And they, they exhaust themselves and, and, and their God never responds because he's not a God, he's a false God. If you really think about it, I didn't add this in, but I think what was going on is you see that the king of glory is still the king of the unseen world. I think God stood there and to every demon present, he stood and said, you cannot engage. Think about that one for a second. They're not free to do what they want. He is still the king of glory that in a moment can snap his fingers and say enough is enough. So in this moment, Elijah says, are you done? You guys sure? You got, probably got a little more in you, you sure? Come on guys, hold it up, fourth quarter, keep going. And he steps up to the furnace and he says, I tell you what, this isn't difficult enough yet, let's bring some water. Bring me 12 gallons, 12, 12 buckets, big barrels and douse this thing. And so they pour water over it. They pour so much water over it that they have to trough it up around so it can contain it. And then Elijah steps back, says, all right, 
do your thing. Fire falls, consumes everything from heaven. And there's people, it was probably lightning. I don't care what it was. It happened in a moment. I, you know, it still worked. This is that God that they rename Hananiah to. And what they're robbing him of is it's not Jehovah that's been gracious to you. You're now gonna live under the authority of Marduk or Baal. Mishael, his name is who is like God. I love this phrase. We sing songs with this, you know, who is like the Lord Almighty. It's this very worshipful statement that causes us to just put our eyes on, on the king of glory and consider his value, his worth. This is Mishael's name. And what they rename him as, Meshach, contains a direct connection to this deity, Ishtar. She's considered to be the goddess of war, desire, and sexuality. I want you to see that his very name was calling people to worship and consider the beauty of God. And they rename him with this pagan deity. So his very name would cause people to consider her. And then Azariah, Jehovah has helped. Which means Jehovah's come to my aid. He's walked alongside him. He's my source is really what it means. They rename him Abednego, which means bond slave of Nabo. Which what he's saying is, Nabo's been my source, my provision. It's worth pointing out that each Hebrew name includes a reference directly to Yahweh. We see that in the IEL in Daniel, in the IAH in Azariah. And the Babylonian names align directly to the false gods that they worshiped. And so we understand the purpose of the changing of these names was not just to move them away from their culture, it was to erase their connection to their religion and to their nation. I want us to consider that the name Daniel and the three were given at birth were given through God's chain of command. Parents are given the authority to name their children. It's an incredible honor, it's an incredible privilege. Scripturally, names carry authority and significance. They're not random. We could say it this way. The names that were given to them by their God-given authority, their parents, had a supernatural ability or a supernatural declarative authority. They were literally declaring things over them, speaking things over them. But the pagan names that were given by their captors all had pagan significance. I'd love to say it this way. They're both antithetical to their true nature and their false truths being whispered over them. Their lies being spoken over them. Here's what I want to challenge us to see. I think this name change in scripture is an indication of how the enemy likes to work. I think there's a strategic assignment that the enemy loves to do and it's aimed at robbing, shifting, and confusing identity. I think this was a direct attempt to challenge what God had said over who they were and convert it to something else. And I think we see that thing at play in our day and in our time very much. True kingdom identity has to be discovered through the lens of a face-to-face encounter with God and a life lived out of the scriptures. What the scriptures say about me has to become more truth than what the culture says about me. I don't care what culture's whispering. What do the scriptures say? What is he saying to me? 
knowing this, he's never going to speak something to me that is not supported in the scriptures. He's not divided, he's not confused. His inspired word is always gonna uphold the rhema word. The rhema means it's the spoken, revealed word of God. I believe God talks, I believe we hear him. I think if you remove that idea from the scripture, how did Abraham have a faith? Because he didn't have a Bible. Let that one bake your noodle. (laughs) But through history, we see something incredibly beautiful, that God gives us the scriptures, and they're intended to be governors, guides, But church, if you're wrestling with identity, with who am I, I don't care if it's who am I on a sexual level or it's who am I in the marketplace, you have to go face-to-face with God and go face-to-face with the scriptures and let it begin to inform your identity. That's the only way kingdom identity is formed. Third thing we see that they were being re-educated for. This process was preparing them for something very specific. They were to become eunuchs under Ashpenaz. Ashpenaz, who's the head palace official, his name means chief of eunuchs. So in our culture, the word eunuch doesn't really translate. We don't really know what that is. Let me, let's take a look at what it is in the Hebrew. The word is cerise, and there's two possible definitions for this word. The first definition is a general term used for those who would serve in the palace. But the second term is one who was castrated for service. If you don't know what castration is, look it up on Google. It means that they were stripped of their ability to reproduce. The reason that this would happen, the reason cultures would do this, is they wanted to bring the best and brightest intelligence-wise into the temples, into the king's palace, but they wanted to protect their family lines. They wanted to make sure that none of these best and brightest would ever be able to reproduce within the palace. And so they would take their slaves, their captives, They would bring them in, they would effectively neuter them, and then put them to work. So we could look at this as potentially Daniel and Hananiah and Shadrach, potentially they're just palace officials. That would be, I'm sure they would have been happy to hear that. You're just going to be palace officials, you're going to live a life of fair luxury, and you're going to serve the king. It'd be easy to view it this way, except... If we look at the rest of scripture, the scriptures will support a different story. In Isaiah 39, seven, Isaiah will say something to King Hezekiah, who's prior to these guys. And what he says to them is, Hezekiah has, has sinned against God. And the way he sinned is, he, he's, he's afraid for, for, for his city. And so instead of going to the Lord and trusting God, he really tries to make an alignment with, with a pagan king to protect him. And so Isaiah will say this, as an ominous warning to Hezekiah, some of your sons, because of what you've done, who will come from you, who you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of King Babylon. I think what we're seeing here, from a scriptural point of view, is more probable than it is not that these young, men's rec- these young men were actually stripped of their ability to reproduce. Their lives were changed forever. I think it would be fair to call this a limitation in life. If I'm one of these young men, I'm thinking, I'm never going to be able to have a family. My legacy is done. I'm never going to be able to carry anything on. Nobody's going to carry my name. It stops with me. 
And so I wanna look at that. I don't really wanna look at the castration side of it. I wanna look at the reality that God didn't actually need their natural ability to create a legacy. The fact that we're studying Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, this many years later, God did something phenomenal for them. He gave them legacy. He allowed their spiritual DNA to replicate for generation after generation after generation. Why? Because they were faithful to him. And here's what I'd love to say. I don't care what your limitation is. I don't care what brokenness you think you carry. I don't care what you think are the reasons you can't and he can't and it won't work. The reality is this. Your faithfulness to God is all he needs to create legacy from your life. You want your life to count? You want your life to shape the world around you? Be faithful to God. See, the lean for us is always, we believe it's our skill set, we believe it's our abilities, and so we want to lean into our strengths to make a legacy. We want to lean into the things we're good at. We want to actually see the production of our hands be what we're known for, and the reality is what God is looking for is faithfulness. So wherever you are, whether it's in school, whether you stay at home with kids, whether you're in the marketplace, I want to challenge you to become like these young men, and realize that with God, all things are possible. He is not limited by my limitation. What he loves to do is to take my faithfulness and multiply it. So the lives of the world around me are changed because I had the courage to stand in the midst of whatever difficulty he put me in. Live out of the scriptures, keep my face on him. Let's stand.